Hey there. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cothern. If you'd like to know more about Living Water, or if you'd like to drop us a note, or if you've got a question, or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now, let's join today's podcast in progress. I'm starting with a difficult topic today. And the reason it's difficult is because it has different connotations for different people. I'm going to be talking quite a bit about abortion, something that I rarely speak about. And yet I think it's a very timely topic and one that, of course, converges with theology. And every time theology takes precedent, I'll need to speak about different political things. I rarely talk about politics, but there are a few things that I've got to say about this particular topic because of what's been happening in our nation just now. My purpose is certainly going to be redemptive in its tone, and I want to come across as compassionately as possible. Even in a group this size, I would be willing to bet that several of us have either immediate family members or extended family members and at least friends who have been touched because of abortion. There may be people that are triggered by even talking about it that create lots of guilt and feelings that they would rather not have to face. And my point is not to heap guilt on anybody. In fact, if there's anybody who listens to this and they have something in their past that would cause them to feel guilty, I want you to know Jesus loves you, accepts you right where you are, and he's able and willing to forgive anything. There's nothing so great in your past that would keep him from forgiving you. So as we begin on that note, I want us to start thinking on a positive note to set the tone for how we might feel about this whole subject that God values every life. Think of somebody that you know in your life, could be recent, could be farther back in your life, that every time you were around them, you felt very valued, you felt cared for, you felt respected, maybe even loved. Have you got that person in your mind? There's something amazing to think that there's somebody that has us on their mind enough that they're willing to pour themselves into us and to build us up. The guy that I'm thinking about, I'm really fortunate because I had a lot of people to choose from as I started going through this exercise at home. But the one I chose to focus on for this specific exercise, his name was Ron. I met Ron right out of seminary when I was green. I thought I knew a lot. I didn't know a lot. I hit the ground running. I was starting to try to do ministry in Ann Arbor. And Ron was my deacon. And Ron was also really good at what he did to help coach other leaders. That's what he did for a living. And he spent time with me. He took me out to lunch. One time he took me out and said, can I give you a gift? I said, man, I'd love that. Sure. And he bought me a day timer. You know those old actual notebooks that people used to use in the old days? They had these things called pens and you'd write on actual paper. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That was right after we graduated from the, the clay slates. And Ron said, uh, I've noticed that you have a tendency to kind of let things fall between the cracks and you're having difficulty with follow-up. And that's something that's so common and it's easy to happen. I understand it. It happens to all of us. Would you mind if I talked you through how I use my day timer in case it's something that you could use in your organizational skills? I thought, wow, here I've got this guy that literally trains CEOs of Fortune 500 companies spending time with me helping me get organized 
Absolutely I was willing for him to do that because he did it with such grace. There could have been some people that have swooped in and they could have said, you know, you're really bad at this and you're really bad at that and you're really bad at this. But he didn't do that. He found a way to say, here's an area where you can grow. Even in the way he said it made me want to do what he was telling me that I could do better. And so that was Ron. And I knew without a doubt that he was a gift from God into my life because I mattered to him. He valued me. And here's the thing for all of us. You matter to God. You matter. You were made in His image and likeness. And so you are always on His mind. He's always thinking about you. If He had a refrigerator, your picture would be right up there on that refrigerator. (laughs) Imagine how God would feel then if somebody in your life decided that they did not value your life and they started seeking a way to take your life away from you. Can you imagine how that would make God feel? If God cares so much about you, think of ourselves as a parent. What would happen if somebody devalued one of our children? How would we feel about that? Well, we'd be angry. We'd be upset. Obviously, we would want to try to stop them from doing that. Why? Because we value that individual because it's a life and it matters. It's precious. And all of us are precious to God. And so he feels that way. When anybody thinks about devaluing a human life because all life is made in the image and likeness of God. Now, rather than pulling out your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to do this like they might have done back in Israel when there were some oral traditions and they would have people that would stand up and lead perhaps in a song, almost like they would do with the, uh, the old American Negro spirituals when somebody would sing the first line and then somebody else would echo that and then they would sing the next line. That would happen very often in worship. And this was a song. Psalm 139 was a song. So I want you just to let the words pour over you and to feel what it feels like to know that you are this important to God. O Lord, you have examined my heart. You know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel. And when I rest at home, you know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous and how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of the womb, You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. 
Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. That's God's word from Psalm 139, 1 through 18. How does it feel to know that God feels that way about you? Pretty special, isn't it? Now, we have to consider the state of our nation right now before we consider this more fully, this passage. There have been some laws passed, some very recently, in fact. You can see sort of a ping-pong match happening at the state levels because this has become a contentious issue so that different people are stepping up, putting different laws in place or trying to so that they can assert what they believe to be their value system as opposed to somebody else's value system. There's one in particular in New York, which is just uh, unconscionable to me. I can't believe that they would do such a thing. It's a law that was passed so that if, let's say, a pregnant woman was murdered and she was expecting a child, now they can only charge the murderer with one count of murder. What did they do with that law? In a sense, they've absolutely eliminated the value of that unborn human being. I can't believe that. I, I shake my head in wonderment to think, how did we even get there? But that's where we are. To put this perspective from a real-life perspective, from somebody that we know, there was somebody that our kids uh, had known from college. She lives out in Spring Arbor. She's a dance instructor. Her life was really getting going well. She had a husband. They have one child. She found out she was expecting. She had seen the ultrasound. She had heard the heartbeat. She probably started preparing the room where that child was going to be sleeping. And then just in a moment, her life changed because she started to pull out onto the highway in front of the Spring Arbor College and Free Methodist Church there. A semi-truck driver was probably glancing down, not paying attention. He looked up. There was a truck in front of him that started to stop. So instead of just slamming on his brakes, he whipped it to the left to try to go around that truck. But when he did that, he went across the center line, and there was Kate. She was the oncoming traffic, and so he hit her head-on with a semi-truck. Now, I mentioned that she was a dance instructor. It just shattered both legs, but she lived. So they lifelight her. They get her into the hospital. They do surgery, extensive surgery on both legs, but then she has to get the news as she's coming out of surgery that the baby inside her womb did not make it and was killed in that accident. Now, you look at the law in the state of New York, and you look at Kate, and you ask Kate, did this matter? Absolutely. You can't tell Kate that this was no small thing. This was huge to her. And yet, for legislators to be able to actually, and this is despicable, applaud when laws like that are passed, it shows us that the state of our union right now is really in a precarious place when it comes to human life. To think that we would even have to try to put forward a law like this is also mind-boggling to me, but there was uh, a legislator in the U.S. Senate that tried to put forth that was called the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act so that if a baby survived an attempt at its life, the murder, the attempted murder of a baby, which is called abortion, if that baby survived that despicable act, 
then they would, doctors would be forced to, to go ahead and try to give it medical care and not just let the baby die. Legislators felt that it was necessary to actually put forth a bill like this to hold different doctors accountable because there are other people, including a governor of one state, who suggested, well, it's up to the doctors and the parents to make a decision whether they should just let that baby pass away or not. I can't believe where we've gotten to that. What's even sadder about that is that this failed in the Senate. It didn't even get passed. So what we see in America is that we have a morality that's been replaced by majority desire. And all you have to do is read right through the Bible and find out that the majority can be very, very wrong, especially when it comes to morality. Just because the majority of the people vote for something doesn't mean that it's morally right. And we cannot allow ourselves to be swayed by a country that's been so off the moral compass and we desperately need to get back to God's Word and to remember that we are fearfully and wonderfully made just as the psalmist put forth in his Psalm 139. We are, therefore, unfortunately, moving rapidly, much more rapidly than I ever thought possible in my lifetime, from being a culture that valued life to a culture that really values death. And it doesn't stop just with abortion. Because as we can start to determine whether we believe a life, any life, even if it's an unborn life, has no value, then that can be expanded. And we're starting to see people leaning toward euthanasia for elderly people. And it becomes strictly economic at that point because the insurance companies, of course, can drive that agenda and they can say, oh, it's going to be so much more costly to care for this elderly individual. They don't have a quality of life. And how do you determine whether a person's quality of life is there or not? What criteria do you use if you don't have a plumb line of God's character for what really matters? And then they can start saying, well, they don't have a quality of life, so we're merciful in just allowing this person to be euthanized. See where it can lead? It doesn't stop with just abortion. So we're moving as a culture from a culture of life to being a culture of death, which is dangerous and it's sad but we have to combat it. How do we do so? This is where it gets tricky. It gets tricky for one reason, because all of us have a fallen nature, and in my sinful nature, I tend to get indignant about certain things, and that makes me angry, but sometimes in my anger, I can sin, because I want to fight fire with fire, and that's what we have to guard against, and that's where we need to read the New Testament and to see how the kingdom of God, especially in the, the Beatitudes, how we as believers can behave, even though there should be some righteous indignation, we can't allow ourselves to try to start fighting fire with fire because then you can have people who justify angry, hateful acts in the name of God and they'll say, well, let's just go and blow up an abortion clinic, for example. That can't be. We have to fight that. Focus on the families doing something that I think is compassionate, it's bold, it's positive, and it's happening on the same day that we're having our fiesta, the May the 4th celebration for our 21-year anniversary for this church. They're doing something called Alive from New York, and it's happening right in Times Square. They're going to be broadcasting on this huge jumbotron, you know, all these things that you can see all around Times Square. And the culmination of this broadcast on that Saturday, this coming Saturday, May 4th, is going to be a live ultrasound so that they can see how precious real life is. And it's a human life that's being formed fearfully and wonderfully by God in the womb. That's a bold thing, and it's compassionate. 
Because you can't escape that truth. And so they're telling the truth, but they're doing so in a compassionate way. I'm here to confess to you that I have thought of some things that I would like to be able to do to combat this, and they're not all scriptural. And God has convicted me of those things because I realized, no, I, in my anger, I have to check, let the Holy Spirit check me because I can get so angry that, for example, and I'll, I'll give you just one example. I'm confessing a pastor to my congregation. I thought, wouldn't it be great to find a really good internet hacker and we would do something so that all those legislators, every time they try to send an email, something would pop up on their screen and they would have to see the gory details of a live uh, baby being torn apart because of an abortion. And I thought, ooh, where does that thought come from? That's not very nice. And for one thing, obviously, that's not something that God would be proud of. But you see, I'm, I'm using myself as, as an example. Do you see how quickly it is for us to start to go toward doing things that are really hateful in retaliation? That was Jesus' problem. He was dealing with people all the time that were so hate-filled, and yet he just poured himself out lovingly and compassionately, but he did not shy away from telling the truth. Wow, that's hard to do. It's a God-sized effort, which is why we need a God in us through the Holy Spirit giving us the right motives to be able to tell the truth and to do so compassionately so that we don't slip over into being so angry that we wind up sinning. There is a no-shame approach happening in our country to normalizing what should not be normalized. They can figure, if we don't have any shame associated with this, if we can act like there's no shame associated with a particular act, then it's not wrong. We don't have to change anything about that. All of us know that if we feel shame, ashamed about something, it's because there's something that should be changed. And so you have legislators that would literally stand up and applaud the passage of certain bills because they're trying to act as if there is no shame associated with the murder of an unborn human being. And they're trying to normalize it. They're normalizing certain phrases and words being used. Fetus, material, biological material, rather than saying, hey, this is a human life. It's a child. It's an unborn child inside this woman. Our family knows people who lean much more toward the liberal interpretation of certain things, and they would disagree with me about a woman's right to choose. And we would say, no, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We don't have a right to choose over a living being because they belong to God. And anything that we choose to do ought to be to protect all human life, no matter the cost to us. And we've had people in our congregation make difficult choices to do just that. But we have this no-shame approach to normalizing in, in, uh, immorality. And we, as a Christian culture, need to call that out and tell the truth to say, you should be ashamed. And we ought to do so lovingly, but we cannot shy away from the truth. We have to find the balance. Compassion and truth. There is a tendency for our, our nation to become more and more secularized. We are so secular right now. That even well-meaning Christian people can go on marches and say, no, but it's still a woman's right. And I would say, oh, you're just missing what the Scriptures show us about what a human life is and who it really belongs to. We've lost the sacredness of humanity. And those two words can't exist. You can slap all the coexist bumper stickers you want on those two words, and they're not going to coexist in the same space because secular is the polar opposite of sacred. So we as believers have to be salt and light, and we have to be a remnant in our nation to be able to stand for right and to say, 
It's the sacredness, the sanctity, the set-apartness, the holiness of human life that causes us to value all life, no matter what the quality might be and how you define it. All life. How do we deal with this issue then? First of all, we don't use the same weapons that the world uses, which means that we can't go around blowing up abortion clinics. We can't do anything that would harm some other person because it's never okay to break God's laws while trying to advance God's kingdom. And we must denounce people who do that because otherwise we start to creep into a fringe group that becomes just as radicalized as other radical groups, and that's just strictly wrong. And so we as Christians need to say, some, if somebody perpetrates a crime against somebody in the name of supporting life, we can say that's wrong. It's clearly against God's laws, and we don't support that, even though we support life. And the reason we think it's wrong is because it's just sending a completely contrary message to the one they should be sending. Secondly, we cannot expect to win the hearts of people through hate speech toward those who hate us. This is where social media has not done us any favors. Because, boy, isn't it easy to be able to whip off some quick retort and a response to somebody by just a flurry, I'm going to eviscerate them with my words. You can hear the, the sparks flying inside the keyboard. You can see the smoke coming out of the monitor on the other end. And you hit send and you think, there, that's going to settle the matter quickly. It doesn't. We're not helping our causes. By, I mentioned this before. We're not helping ourselves by using social media to try to change people's hearts. We need to throw away social media and sit down with people face to face. Case in point, good illustration. I was invited years ago to represent creation science in a forum. It was an Aquinas, Aquinas forum at a Catholic university in Adrian. And I thought it was supposed to be kind of well-balanced so that there would be four slightly different views expressed. <laughs> Turns out, I was way over here, and I represented this view, and all three of the other people on the panel were way over here, and it was like, let's get this guy, Knight. And so uh, I stood up. Fortunately, God was good. He was gracious. Strangely, this is a God thing. This is, uh, I'm not the smartest guy I know, so I know it wasn't me. Uh, but by the time we finished the first round of debate and they were allowed to have 10 minutes each to rebuttal me, they, they didn't know what to say and they each just deferred their time to me and I shared the gospel with them. I mean, that's just a God thing. But we cannot expend, expect to win the hearts of people through hate speech. I had been writing a weekly column in the paper and if you ever want to get people writing to the paper in the op-ed section, write about abortion or creation science you will get more mail from those two subjects than just about anything. Oh, that and same-sex marriages, those three topics. So when I uh, had written a couple of articles, I thought I was being facetious, a little tongue-in-cheek at times, using some humor, but they, one of the guys that stood up, the very first guy that started to speak, just eviscerated me verbally from writing, for writing one of those articles. And I stood up and recognized that, yeah, I probably could have changed my tone a little bit. I said, you know, it's easy to hide behind a computer with anonymity and to send things out into the world. And it's not the same as when we sit down together like we just did. Because we went out to eat with these folks before we had the debate. And we saw them as human beings. We sat face to face. We got to know their kids' names. Got to find out where they went to school, where they grew up, what they liked to do in their spare time. And I said, it's so much easier to 
just tear people apart in print than it is if we're gathering together in the same space, which is why I'm glad we have forums like this one so we can talk with one another. And it settled everything down and we started to see each other differently. That's why I think it's so important that we think of this as a relational problem as much as a theological problem. We need to relate to people who are different than we are. And that takes effort and it takes patience. But we need to be relational in how we're tackling this issue. The only way to make a difference is by compassionately telling the truth even when people disagree with you, even when they scoff at you for it. But we have to tell the truth. Truths that remind us how all lives matter to God. I've shared a few of these and I'm just reminding all of us. These are the kinds of truths that we can remind those even if they differ with us about them. First of all, I believe with all my heart. Like we sang about, I believe. I believe that God is the author of all life. You can see that in Genesis and in Nehemiah. He's the maker of everything. All life, including us. And you're the life, you. And if you're sitting down with somebody, you can say, you're the life that God values. He knit you together in your mother's womb. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. God made you and you matter. And you matter to me. You're valued by God. We need to remind people of that. Secondly, God looks upon a child in the womb as a person. And these particular passages show that so clearly. I love Psalm 139 for that reason because he paints that picture so realistically and so poetically, and it's so true. Same thing with Luke 1, 39 through 44. He looks upon a child in the womb as a person, not as tissue, not as a fetus, a human being. A person's a person no matter how small. That great theologian, Dr. Seuss, said so. How can you look at that and not see that as a person? It's such an ordeal. All of you who have been through that, you know it's such an exhausting process. And yet everything just fades into oblivion as you stare into the face of that perfectly formed human being. And you can think, this is a precious creation of God. It's my child. Five minutes earlier, when it was inside of me, it was still a, a person, still a child. It hasn't changed except for its environment but that's still my child. Third, Jesus demonstrated compassion for all living people. John 10 is that passage about him being the good shepherd. What does a good shepherd do for his sheep? He lays down his life for those sheep. And that's what Jesus did for us, and we must do the same for other living beings. He has compassion for little children. He would say, let the little children come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. In fact, unless you can have the faith just like these little children, the kind of faith that's completely trusting, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Children are there to even teach us things. We parents know that. We learn so much from parenting and from watching our kids grow and learn to trust. Jesus is God, and he has compassion for little children. Here's the thing. We cannot give in, but we cannot give up on this issue. It's always going to be with us, it's going to get worse before it gets better, but we cannot give up. And so we can't give in, which means that relationally, you and I have to do everything we can with the Holy Spirit's guidance to be in people's lives enough to try to influence them as far as is humanly possible. And where it's not possible and people don't want to hear us anymore, then we have to walk away and go somewhere else because we can't make up their mind for them, but we can try to influence them as best we can. So what can we do? There are several things we can do. 
Let me give you just a few. We can collect items for a crisis pregnancy center, also known as now Family Life Services, and we're doing that through the month of May. Simple things, practical things, a whole list that's going to be published, and we'll publish that some more, I'm sure, on our Facebook page as well. So we can help do that. That's a practical way to help. We can love people even if they oppose our view of abortion. We can love them and try to influence them without resorting to anger and hatred. We can talk with those who have had abortions and be compassionate in helping them find forgiveness and healing in Christ Jesus because He is the ultimate answer for every one of these issues. And there are plenty of them around. There will continue to be plenty of them around. And we need to put our arms around folks like that to say, I accept you, I love you, God loves you, He knows your pain. You don't have to carry this with you alone. Don't feel like you have to face this alone. We are walking with you through this. You can find healing from this. We can value life in every way possible and talk about it every time we get a chance. I love people like Joy's grandmother, Grammy Fellows. She used to talk about Christ in the most winsome ways. She goes, oh, look at that pretty flower. God made that flower. Oh, look at that precious individual, that little baby. God made that baby. Every time we were turning around, Grammy Fellows was pointing to the maker of all things and showing what a wonderful artist he was in the way he could form things. We can invest our lives in the lives of others who face difficult circumstances and who may have no place else to turn. Some Christians may need to invite a pregnant woman to come live with you for a few months so that they can have a safe place in which to have that child. Now that is going a few steps further than most people would be willing to go, but if we don't do it, where is it going to happen? Sometimes it means that we give up a lot for ourselves for the sake of showing, demonstrating that Christ-like love that sacrifices for the sake of other people. Sometimes we need to help young ladies find out where their true worth comes from. My wife was so good at that. I sat down with her just the other day. This was kind of a Holy Spirit prompting, I think, because I said, honey, do you realize how many young ladies have had major transformations in their life because you were willing to take them on as wonderful, not projects, but human beings that knew that you were a person who loved them enough to tell them the truth, and you came alongside them for months at a time. I started naming them off over the periods of years when Joy has done that for them. Sometimes she'd be up till 2, 3 a.m. on the couch in our house, and she would have her arm around and just let them cry on her shoulder, and then she would start to try to work with them and say, the reason that you're suffering so badly is that there's a tearing in your own spirit because you're not this person. God made you this person, and you're trying to be this person. You need to surrender to Him. He's the one who loves you unconditionally. You don't have to find love by crawling into bed with every man that comes along. That's not going to get you satisfaction. And she would say so, and she would do so so lovingly that she could tell them the truth, and they kept coming back for more because they loved her. We need to be that kind of voice of reason and love and truth for people in our lives to let them know that God is where we find our true satisfaction. We can't find it anywhere else. And then we need to make those costly decisions, sometimes even if it costs us a lot. I'm so proud of the Cooley family. I'm glad that they allowed us to, to have the YouTube video of her testimony, which is on our website, so it can be shared with other people. She made a costly decision with Josh's uh, full support. They came to that conclusion very quickly when they knew that their child might not have a great 
opportunity to live. And yet they said, no, we're going to do the best we can to provide the best possible place for Tyler to thrive as long as God allows Tyler to live. And it was costly. But God is blessing that family for that challenge to other people to say, yes, it's costly and it's still worth it. We have to support life. We have to be a subculture of life even if our culture is becoming a culture of death. If the church is not the culture of life, where are we going to find it? We have to be that culture. Will you band together as people of the Word and help support life as God helps us help others? Let's bow together and let's pray. Father, this is one of the most difficult situations that we're facing in our nation today, and it's a big issue, a difficult issue. It's a God-sized problem, which is why none of us individually can tackle this one problem and feel like we're making a dent. But because we're not just individuals, we're actually knit together as a family of faith with millions of other people who are trying to be people of the Word, people who are following Jesus Christ, people who are being Spirit-led in the way we value what you value, I pray that together, as a subculture, you will help us make a difference and make a dent in this world so that we can value and uphold life because all life matters to you. Thank you that you love us that much. And Father, if there's somebody listening to my words and they have not taken that step to say, man, I want to run into God's arms. I need that kind of grace. I want Him to be my source of satisfaction. Then I pray that they will do that, that they'll admit that they need you, that they'll cry out to you and say, God, forgive me for my past, for my sins. Envelop me with your love. Thank you for your grace and your forgiveness. I want you to be my guide for the rest of my life. I pray they'll do that because you're the true source of satisfaction for every one of us. And I thank you for what you're going to do through your people. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.